this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering four conversations around the general topic of cirrhosis treatment and drug development. I start this conversation by asking who the point person, people, or organization should be in driving a shift in thinking about clinical trials and cirrhosis. Stephen Harrison, Jorn Schottenberg, and Louise Campbell consider some of the groups that could play a role, each of which has motivations, reasons to lead, and limitations in its ability to do so. Eventually, Louise asks a question about the timeliness of data that turns the conversation at least 120 degrees in a new direction. This episode is full of big thoughts and, to use an old-fashioned phrase, has the potential to shift the paradigm on Nash drug development. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion group. Roger Green. The next question I went to is, how do you drive that dialogue? Who drives that dialogue? Is that a GLI thing? Is that a uh, key opinion leader thing? Does everybody storm the tent at once? I mean, what's the most efficient way to make that happen? Or forget efficient, fastest way to make it happen. Stephen Harrison. Everybody wants the same thing. The hardest part, as we've talked about before, in a movement is for one person to take the first step and get the second person to join them. Once that happens, the movement tends to take off. We started that a while back with the Liver Forum, and there was some early momentum there to try to collaborate and get things done. Unfortunately, uh, that momentum seems to have waned a little bit. Many of us are regalvanized, particularly seeing how close we are with these NITs, and more recently by that discussion with Frank and Ania from the FDA about bringing in the Biomarker Qualification Division to the same table, it really has encouraged me to want to regalvanize this meeting of the minds, if you will, to bring these parties together to say, let's look collectively at the data. Let's look at the data that's been generated by multiple trials. And maybe we need to collate that data and actually see what happens when you put thousands and thousands of patients together. Do we get at some meaningful numbers that then allow us to stratify patients appropriately and enroll them into clinical trials using a non-invasive test as both the screening tool and the end of treatment tool, looking at change in that assessment over time to correlate to an outcome measure. It's not that we don't have the interest. It's just somebody taking the initiative to pull it all together. The patient advocacy groups are terrific. I don't think they're necessarily the ones that are going to pull this together. It probably needs to be a combination of our congresses like AASLD and EASL driving some sort of conference or committee with the FDA and the EMA and the Biomarker Qualification Group, some key stakeholders, if you will, coming together to really say, look, let's let's take the data that, that Nimble, that Litmus, that Pharma is generating. Let's lay it all out on the table. Let's evaluate it. Maybe we need to do individual patient data meta-analyses and break that down into cirrhosis versus non-cirrhosis break it down into child's A, child's B, child's C, or whatever. But I think we can get at this answer. And I think we can do it very quickly if we're just able to sit down at the same table and have a constructive discussion about how to analyze this data. So I'll go back to the same question I asked a moment ago, which is who drives
drives who has the time and the motivation to drive that discussion? You started talking, I immediately went back to Mike Charlton's Who's Larry Kramer of Nash? Who's Larry Kramer's Roses, which is really how I've been thinking about this question. But well, quite frankly, the people that should drive the discussion are the people that have the most interest in it. And that would be the Yorns and the Stevens and the other uh, principal investigators that are working very closely with the pharmaceutical industry to develop mechanisms of action to target this disease. And we all see the patients. Louise sees these patients. GLI folks and the Fatty Liver Foundation folks see these patients. The guys that could drive this most readily are those that that actually do this every day. And really just, it's a lot of work to pull this together, but I think it's something that needs to be done. Louise Campbell. Can I ask it from the opposite way? What is it that stops them moving to non-invasives in that category? Because the evidence is fairly strong. What is the additional thing that biopsy seems to convey that they want to stick with because it is interesting in the cirrhosis population that they talk about the outcomes being non-progression if non-progression was also an outcome earlier on in disease we may not be overwhelmed by end-stage cirrhosis but they don't want to let go of the improvement yeah that's a great point louise in fact if you look at some of the more recent results that have come out from these phase 2b trials semaglutide is a great example there is data from that trial to suggest the drug prevents progression of fibrosis but it doesn't have any impact on regression of disease at least when looked at semi-quantitative that's not been something that's been a focus in clinical trials of preventing progression of disease. Paradoxically, in cirrhosis trials, that's the main thrust of this, is preventing progression rather than looking at regression of disease. So it's kind of the opposite. In non-cirrhotic trials, we look at regressing fibrosis, not at halting progression of disease. In other words, you don't get any brownie points for showing no progression. You only get points if you show regression. Whereas in a cirrhotic trial, right now, all the effort is put on preventing progression rather than showing regression of disease. So that's been part of the conundrum. The other part is, quite frankly, Louise, the focus has not been on NASH cirrhosis because the thought is it's such a tough nut to crack. I mean, from the bariatric surgery data I mentioned earlier, there have been very few data sets in well-compensated cirrhotic patients undergoing bariatric surgery. And the LaSalle paper is really the key paper that's looked at this. And the number numbers are so small in cirrhosis, it's hard to really know how many of those people are actually regressing disease. And at the same time, it's hard to really show that you've prevented progression of disease because, again, what are you comparing it to? The numbers are so small. So we've got to study larger numbers of patients, and we have to look at it through the lens of not only progression of disease, but how are we doing from a regression perspective? And liver biopsy is, that's just been dogma, right? I mean, that's, that's what we've always done. And we just now, or when I say just now, the past five years, these NITs have kind of come onto the scene. I mean, MRE has really kind of taken off in the past two years where we're, we're generating data linking a KPA to an outcome measure. That's just within the past year where we've gotten that. And Mason Nareden and his group at Cedars have kind of built
built on that data a little bit as well. And now we have clinical trials actually doing MRE and showing improvement in MRE. Uh, the Madrigal data I presented at Easel from the Maestro NAFLD 1 trial showed some of that data. So we're beginning to generate clinical trial data with mechanisms of action showing regression in MR elastography at the same time that we're showing that MRE natural history is that if your KPA is within a certain range, you actually are at greater risk of progression of disease. So we're in parallel showing two different things. MRE can predict an outcome, but there are also treatment options that can show regression of MRE, but they're still all hinged to a liver biopsy. That's the maturations we have to go through to get away from a liver biopsy. And it's just connecting the dots. It's as simple as that. We have to generate prospective data, meaningful data that will convince the regulatory authorities that liver biopsy is indeed an imperfect gold standard and we have a better way to do this than using liver biopsy. So could you say that we might be the sort of masters of our own downfall? When I was looking and reviewing, I think it was the Ken Cousy paper, they were looking at the guidelines. Now you've hit on the point there that non-invasive technology has moved so quickly and COVID to some extent has hastened how we now do telemedicine. But if we look at all of the guidelines that everybody refers to, whether it's Arzold, whether it's Easel, whether it's the BSG, some of these guidelines are 10 years old, way before some of this technology was even developed and sought and used. So the trials that you talk about are so innovative and forward thinking with technology that's not even included in our own guidelines. So if we don't renew our guidelines more frequently to keep up with the pace of our own technology, can the FDA be criticized for not moving until we move? The issue with the guidance documents is that they're very conservative and they're very evidence-based and they're driven by data. As a result, they're very comprehensive in reviewing the data and they're very challenging to write. For instance, the AASLD NAFLD guidance document that I happen to be privileged enough to be a part of that was published in 2018 and is currently under a rewrite now is a very in-depth document and it's very time-consuming to put together. And so to do it with much more frequency is challenging. Now, we may get to a point like we did with hepatitis C, where we joined forces in hepatitis C we did with the Infectious Disease Society of America, the IDSA, and we actually made a website and it's a living document that gets updated frequently as new data comes out. It might be that we're rapidly moving to that point in the NASH field, where we move away from a more of an iconic every five year guidance document update to one that moves to a website that's that can be updated frequently and there are people that are hosts of that website that scour the database and provide updates as it comes out from very nice double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trials. Because again, what you might do in the UK might be different than what Jorn does in Germany and it might be different than what I do in the USA. It really comes down to your comfort level and how you want to manage those patients. The guidance documents are just that. They're just guidance. It's it's not dogma, it's not necessarily standard of care, but it lends itself to that operation. But it doesn't mean that's the only thing that we look at. So I applaud your comment, and I might just introduce it here. I think we might need to move to something more like the Hep C guidance, where it's a living document that we can modify more readily. Okay, that's the headlines, and that's great. This brought to you by Louise, by the way. As are most good things. And now, back to Roger. 
We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday, September 1st, with our guest Donna Cryer to explore how the Delta variant of COVID-19 will affect NASH treatment and clinical trials. It's always fun when Donna joins us to get the band back together. And this discussion has its roots in the very first days of our podcast. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.